So I, I see Brexit as uh, an agenda to reshape the landscape that excludes those black and brown people from. Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is... Imagining a new normal. Towards social justice. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast, if you have the means, via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited to be joined by Shireen Donnelly-Scott. Hello, Shireen. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is another really exciting episode. Do you know what, T? I'm feeling a bit funny because I feel like we're having some of our most exciting guests on this season. And it's remote. (laughs) <laughs> I know, it's just weird. I can't share my excitement. I'm talking and getting very excited and people are looking at me like I'm crazy. I've got my headphones yeah. on. I'm just talking at the screen. <laughs> How are you doing, Shireen? Thank you so much for joining us. I'm good. I'm very good. Um, before we get into it, I guess it would be really good to tell our listeners a little bit about your scholarship but also where you've been studying because you've, you've followed a, a bit of a different trajectory to a lot of our UK scholars that we've interviewed in the past so it'd be really great to sort of hear a little bit more about your journey into academia. I did my undergrad so long ago now I graduated in 2007 and I was at the University College for the Creative Arts I studied uh, fashion design and I went into the fashion industry and I worked for about 10 years in product development and garment technology roles. So I've worked for high street brands like River Island, kind of upmarket high street, like the White Company. I was working at Puma when I decided that I wanted to go off and do my MA. So (laughs) I enjoyed working in the industry, but there was just some things that just weren't sitting with me in terms of design, development, particularly working with like streetwear. I mean, was great but you wake in your streetwear and obviously that is black culture right there the development and all that kind of thing was just like okay I want to be a bit more critical about things and fashion and production so I mean I should probably say that when I did my BA in fashion design I also had to do cultural studies for my dissertation so I suppose that was probably one of the areas I wanted to continue so I decided to do my MA and I briefly left I suppose the fashion industry to do my MA. I went to University of Westminster and did my MA in cultural critical studies and I absolutely loved it and I actually realised that I was pretty or fairly good at this. I don't know what it was but there was just something that I just didn't think I was very academic. You know I came from I had a kind of creative background so it was like I'm creative, I'm not academic. You can't be those two things at the same time. I suppose I realised I could be both of those things and I wanted to continue to kind of develop that side yeah so I was like okay I'm gonna do my my PhD and I decided to do it but I decided to do it in the US so I'm at the New York University and I'm with the media culture and communications department there Um, I love it because it's a multidisciplinary department and I'm a multidisciplinary scholar so it's really great to be able to you know kind of develop that aspect of myself there and uh, yeah it's been going well, so far, so yeah, four years in. What do they think of black culture in the US? 
do they think it exists or perceptions? Yeah, what's Varying, the perception? per- varying perceptions. <laughs> yes, that's the word. That's the word. Yeah, well, go on. Yeah, that's interesting. Being obviously Black British person in New York, I've come across lots of interesting comments. I mean, for the most part, a lot of people don't actually place me as being British. So okay. a lot of people will instantly go for South African or Australian, bizarrely. Quite because, a lot. Well, your accent sounds to them. For the most part, there's a real kind of disconnect with Britain and Black people. So oh, okay. I think for the most part, it's you're not from there. That's like, you know, scratch that as an option. It must be. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I'm always amazed when someone says to me, are you from the UK? And I'm like, how did you know? Like, you know, it really is a genuine shock for me. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of people that are really surprised. A lot of people, I mean, obviously, there are also very, there are people that know and are interested. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to say that they don't know generally, mm-hmm. but, you know, I will also say that I've met very few people that usually don't and are very intrigued by me being from the UK and uh-huh. what was it like and what you do and what kind of things. And then kind of like, you know, obviously having to. Explain. Some cultural references, yes. Yeah. yeah. Your question, T, reminds me of, um, and this is obviously anecdotal and it's not very sociological academic, but it reminds me of um, Spike Lee basically dragging black British people in She's Gotta Have It. Like this perception that we're somehow not as radical or not as like have you guys watched it the more no, recent no, no. series? No, no. I have not, but I've had so many people ask me for my opinion on it. Really? Uh, okay. <laughs> what I don't I don't get it. Is... He he basically he it's basically in she's got to have it. I'm going to get the details of it wrong. There's a character who plays a a British Nigerian and he's had a couple of Black British people in his stuff and he kind of positions us as all being like really posh and not obviously. really obviously. <laughs> Anyway, I just wondered how that sort of had manifested in your experience, that sort of idea of us not being as um, critical. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's that they don't think we're critical, but I've definitely had people ask a lot about, like, oh, you know, the history and the culture and background. Also, I think a lot of people find it interesting when I tell them, obviously, that I'm of Caribbean descent. So that extra layer of, oh, interesting. (laughs) Could you talk us through or introduce us to your PhD? The project, I mean, as a whole, I mean, there's so many layers to it, but essentially I'm aiming to look at the Brexit referendum result. I'm really interested in how we as a country got to the referendum result in 2016, when there were so many other kind of cultural moments prior to that, potentially kind of presented racial hostilities in the UK to be kind of at a kind of you know, kind of fairly happy medium, or the myth of a happy medium anyway. So, you know, like think about the Olympics and various other things that were happening. So I'm interested in where we came to to get to that point. I mean, I'm not trying to say that it was ever like perfect, but, you know, there's this real kind of like shock that happened in 2016 about where the country was and obviously everything that's happened since. And I'm trying to do that through uh, analysis of music, grand music, because obviously it's been around for almost 20 years. And from it being obviously niche subgenre that's come out of East London to being the kind of music of Britain right now, it is the music. It is on every. It is on everything. It's on every radio station. It's on. It's on our adverts on television. It's it's, it's mainstream. Everywhere. 
Absolutely. So my question for this research project is how have we got to that point? And, you know, how can I do that through charting Grimes, I suppose, mainstream success, but also it's just its success and its appeal, um, you know, especially since it is represent, I mean, obviously it's a black British music, but it also is predominantly represented by black people. You know, you do see at the start of its kind of commercialization of a lot of white artists coming through, which I think is something you would probably expect for the industry to try to kind of like whitewash it. But, you know, right now, the biggest artists are black men and it's amazing to see them exist in a culture that right now is incredibly hostile to them. Would you not say that given its niche starting blocks, it still continues to be niche because what it exists, it exists outside. So the narrative is, is telling, it's not telling the story of a, of a national story, it's telling the story of urban marginality in different, in different cities in the UK. So it resonates with people in Birmingham, it resonates with people in Leeds, but it's resonating to a certain, a certain demographic. And when the mainstream takes over, the mainstream is obviously going to take it and, like you said, whitewash it or make it mainstream. But the reason why I, I, I would contend, and like I said, I'm going to start your opinion, why we came to that result in 2016, it wasn't a surprise, was that Grime is telling the story of the dispossessed. It's not telling the story or the myth that Britain likes to present of, its, present of itself. Absolutely. It, it's absolutely doing that. But I think also, and um, what I also want to do with this research project is obviously race is obviously an important part or focus point of it. Um, and the black bodies, you know, kind of framing them at the centre of this is incredibly important. But I'm also trying to think about white bodies as well and their relationship to this so you know you know I think one of the interesting things is of East London the area the dynamics of East London thinking about the way in which grime I mean East London grime you know has kind of embodied cottony rhyming slang mm. you know the way that you know one of the wonderful things about it in relation to blackness is that it, it pulls in a lot of ethnic differences of blackness together which mm-hmm. I think is something that historically black British music hasn't done as well as grime. So you have a lot of grime's top MCs being of African descent instead of what we would usually kind of see in Black British music, which is of Caribbean descent. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's all of that that's really amazing. But also within this kind of context of regionality, you have that there are also white bodies, there are also Asian bodies that were working within the grime scene at the very early stages and, you know, and continuing to do that. And I think that is also incredibly important to think as well about that social and political and racial kind of dynamics that grime embodies. Garage of the housing was about everyone being together. It wasn't about a race thing, it's about a party thing. So I didn't, I didn't care about where you came from. And as that's evolved and as we've grown up, it was, it's not, it's not there's, there's no such thing as colour blindness because everyone's aware of their colour, right? But it was, it's just a vibe, it's, you come to my party, you're from my ends and you're from my ends. So boom, we're cool. I think the kind of analogy is it's like almost like the early skinhead movement where you have white working class boys in and Jamaican Jamaican immigrants coming over and coming together. There is a coming together with that shared like of music because the original skinhead music was around reggae rather than the, the far right thing that's evolved into. So there's always been this kind of interchange at the working class level. And this is, I guess, a kind of historic in London where you have, a, especially in the, in the 18th century, a large urban black population in London mixing with the white working class and people you have people speaking of it so elizabeth the first said something about she didn't want the blacks mixing too much with the whites it was a concern for them but this has always been there's always been that fringe where it's an inclusive thing it's not just about black people 
It's about, it's almost a class thing at this point, really, before colour comes into it, well, race as we know it. Absolutely. I think, I mean, yeah, that's what I think is interesting as well. Well, I think is important to consider, uh, in, obviously, when in relation to thinking about Brexit and the British landscape. So, you know, thinking about that uh, interaction within race and class, like what is that relationship is incredibly important. Obviously, Grime starts in East London, is obviously has a relationship with other boroughs in, in London who are also then producing grime. And obviously right now we see it's got all across the country. Uh, one of the things I'm really interested in is like, well, some of these parts of the country are not, don't have a black predominant uh, population. I was unfortunately supposed to be going to Scotland to a grime concert up there. And, you know, to just to see the dynamics and to see how they are connected with the music. So, you know, it's important to think about for me, that, I mean, but I agree, Black British music has always had that connection, especially when I think of, like, the London Carnival. Yeah, 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 yeah. And just bringing everybody together and just having a good time. Mm-hmm. That vibe. One of the things that stands out to me in what you're saying, Shireen, and what you've sent over to us as well, is how Brexit is so... Well, I mean, we've been clear on the, on this podcast that we think that there's a multiple reasons for why Brexit happens, but you can't talk about Brexit without talking about anti-immigrant sentiment and racism. Thinking about how something like that, something so aggressive like that can exist, while something so creative and anti what that was ha- is at the height of its sort of popularity right now. And it made me think of like sort of cultural production in general, like thinking about like the amount of books that we're getting at the moment, the amount of like public support that some black and brown bodies are getting right now with regards to space, money, all this stuff. There are some good things happening, although it's, it's never enough. There are some good things happening. All this stuff existing whilst at the same time, like you've got Nigel Farage on your TV like every day, you've got the rise of the far right that is so, so structural, but also very, very interpersonal within our lives. Like, how can this all exist together in such, like, close proximities is what has been sort of playing on my mind, I think, for the past few years, even. Yeah, absolutely. It is really kind of bizarre and contradictive at the same time. And for the research, there's a way of the intention that it's trying to do, what it's trying to do, I suppose, is look at it through kind of obviously visual and cultural and, and, and sonic cultural production. Well, I think, I suppose that the, the most part is thinking about both the political agenda. So thinking about what is the current government's political agenda in terms of creating a kind of visual cultural landscape. What do the, the government think Britain looks like and how do they want it to look like? What are they trying to do to make it look like? So I, I see Brexit as, uh, an agenda to reshape the landscape that excludes those black and brown people from. And then at the same time to think about what culture is doing, not necessarily the cultural industries, but I think thinking about what, how, what the cultural industries are supporting, because obviously they are government institutions, right? So how are they interacting with culture? So I think that's where the, the project is trying to think about both the kind of cultural agenda that the government is trying to push and also what culture is happening on the ground in the UK and how those two things clash. I, I was going to say, I was just going to add like to that, it's quite interesting to say so you, the kind of two concepts of the visual and the audio, the sound, right? So the sound is, so, uh, the sound is a weird thing that sound can be racialized. So growing up, people would say 
Sebab mic so that's that's black music. It's a black sound. That's a white sound. So house music technically that's for white people. Or some people say, oh, that's, it's it's R and B. It's got heavy bass side. So that's black music. So sound, which is an abstract thing, becomes racialized. And then when alongside that, we have the idea of rep- the visualization gets racialized too. So. My cousin was in Roldy, and when they got their first record deal and they went to the studio, what was interesting is none of them were on the album cover. The record company made the decision to replace all their photos with a cartoon, and they represented them as animals or demons. I remember that. Right? So it's the idea of who can be seen. So sound and, and vision gets racialized just the way that food does. Like chicken. Chicken gets racialized. A melon gets, a watermelon gets racialized. But they're just objects, Right? So society projecting onto things or mapping onto things in ways that we don't, sometimes don't even think of. In the playground, I used to hear that all the time. So when I went to school and I started to jungle music, someone would say to me, before it got popular, oh, that's white people music. Before they've even heard it, there's a socialization that sound has been heard in a certain way. These certain sonics mean a certain thing. So if it's a high BPM and it, there's no kind of rhythm to it, people associate it with white people because white people can't dance. If it's got a bass line and it's melodic, it's black people's music because they like to dance. And it's those kind of, those kind of representations. And so when you're, say for example, if you're a black person, and I think, I think uh, Jason spoke about this, Chantel, Jason Arde, when he went to like a rock concert, people, black people would see him as not being black because he's not listening to what a black sound. He's listening to a white sound. And it's interesting how we carry these messages in us, we embody them without even knowing I think that that is one of the things that I'm grappling with is, is the racialization of sound. And you're absolutely right that, you know, the way in which we hear, particularly with music, the way in which we hear certain properties of sound that's supposed to be determinant of black music. And I think that a lot of that seems to be, well, not all of it, but there are a lot of those kind of traditional notions of black sound that don't necessarily appear in like more kind of, uh, dance EDM kind of music like which I think rhyme is kind of like playing with that many people question especially when I've uh, this will be generational but for many people for older generations who talk about grime will be like oh you know that's not music you know where's the melody where's the drums where's the you know all these kind of like, particular sound properties that they absolutely would associate with being black music so absolutely white people that adopt that sound I'm sure there's a pushback because whiteness also tr- tries to police it, police themselves, right? Just like blackness does. So there's white boys would say that you're not you're not white because you're listening to black music. There's a sense of exclusion. There's young white guys feel. So when I've gone to like hip hop concerts, it's usually full of lots of white guys, right? Who are really into the music. They rap along, and they are almost like a, a David Wodigan or a Tim Westwood. They almost become black in inverted commas, you know. So they, they become honorary black people almost, right? The more knowledge they have of that particular scene, the blacker they become. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, I mean, it's one of the things I'm working through is, you know, other ways that blackness is co-acted into the music. So it doesn't have to be that we are looking at drums, mm. percussion. There are other ways that the black body and the black experience is co-acted mm. into sound. And, mm. um, you know, thinking through those things, you know, one of the, you know, grime, you know, there are many, uh, I mean, you know, one of the things about the movement is crime is being written by for a few scholarships. And I will mention Monique Charles has written about, you know, the speed, the tempo, you yeah. know, being kind of indicative of isolation, right? That it's kind of like disorientating. 
And so I think there's those ways that we can also think about how the Black experience can be embodied in the process of listening to sound. So I think there's other ways that we can think about Black sound that doesn't have to be strict and rigid about particular kind of ways in which we hear it, kind of notes of the sound. Going back to something that I said earlier that one of the things I love is the incorporation of kind of like Cockney rhyme and slang, right? Kind of like the kind of the far elevated beats of the minute. Kind of what we would potentially maybe see is more kind of like white dance kind of music. I like those kind of incorporations. They're interesting because I think it, it speaks to a kind of sense of place making, right? And mm-hmm. identity development within that culture, right? They are Black, they are British. This is what they hear in their landscapes. This is their experiences and they're making music from that. And it doesn't matter whether you can distinguish or, you know, Black sounds or white sounds. It is the sound and they are Black bodies producing it. So it is Black sound. Being from East London myself, when I grew up, there was a distinction between how people speak. So when I went to South London, people would say I was white. Oh, I'm trying to be white because they would hear me and it's the words that I use. So people would say that you're not black. My friends still tell me about this to, to this day. There was a, a big thing. So 989, boom, it's a long time ago, right? Man's very were Reebok classics to school, but Nike Max had just come out, right? Nike Jordans. I weren't wearing Jordans because people don't wear Jordans in East London, but it was Reebok classics for us growing up. And that distinction of the dress code the way you speak, your intonation, the music that you listen to. I wasn't black in South London. I was a co-cutter in South London by that measure. And when I went back to East London, I, it was a confusing time for me because I didn't, I wasn't really aware of these things going on at the age of 11. But this is how I was categorised because the way I spoke, that program saying it wasn't applicable to other parts of London. Because if I spoke like that, when I first, when I first went to school, I used to get crucified. I just got home crying to my mum, begging, please take me away, <laughs> take me away. Oh, T. Yeah, like, it was so different. It's different, but you, it's, it's, it's interesting. It, it wasn't something I ever thought about. It wasn't, I didn't understand that the way you speak is a marker of blackness in inverted commas. Even, I suppose, as you get older, you get, you find it more, uh, you're well-spoken and people are shocked that you're well-spoken and you can see it in people's faces, the surprise. And so if I go into like, if I'm in, I don't know, Stockholm, and I go into like a, a Caribbean shop, they, it's the difference. It's when you speak and they see a difference in you, it's surprise in their face. And it's something that you can, it's not something they take back, it's a big thing, but you can see it in people's eyes, right? They get taken aback. Speech and accents are absolutely indicative of a sense of belonging, a sense of where you're from, cultural kind of upbringing. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're incredibly important how we connect with other people and how we find our, our communities. So it is incredibly important. And I think that is another thing about grind because it's, it's you know, obviously it, it embodies a sense of language that has now spread like wildfire, right, across mm-hmm. the country. And um, it's also something that has caused a lot of contention with middle-class white people in this country too. Yeah. So... It, you know, and I think that is another another element of it, you know, the, the way that the language of the culture is also kind of like defines the landscape. 
on that point, Shireen, I was wanted to read out this section of your abstract. And I think it does talk to what you're saying there. The while the boundaries between music and politics have always overlapped, the antagonism expressed towards grime by the country's conservative-led government, juxtaposed with the genre's growing national appeal, is revealing of the conflict between life in the UK versus how Britain sees itself. Boom! Thinking about what you just said about grime spreading like wildfire, whilst at the same time you've got people being like, give me my country back. Like, it's so interesting. Like, sound, the visual, the message. It's giving people another reason to vilify multicultural working classes, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And multi-ethnicised, multi-racial working classes. It's like, co- it's like, it's like grime represents this actual very real part of UK the energy that some middle classes and the Conservative-led government before 2016 all the way up to now had the energy they've given to that. Like, didn't even Theresa May, like, cast Stormzy in Parliament or something? I can't remember what happened. Like, I think it fits into, well, I, I kind of look at it, not differently, but along the same lines, I, said, I think it fits into that narrative of how Britain sees itself quite well. Like I think Britain, if, if an immigrant is proven to is proven utility, right? So if Storms is not making political statements, he's he's good, right? He's good. Like if they're not making, but as soon as you're not proving utility, as soon as you're speaking out or being rebellious, that is that it fits that trope that they have of black people. Like you should be seen and not heard. You should be grateful that you're here. You you need to be contributing. And it's that whole narrative still that black and brown bodies, and not even just black and brown bodies outsiders have to be prove their utility prove their worth and not say a word prove, as long as you're proving your worth to this country there's some kind of economic benefit to the country you're good now I, if, if utility is the basis that they're basing things on we've proved ourselves about a million times over i don't need to prove anything anymore right because mm-hmm. I, I, i've done it all since you've met me that's what i've been doing right mm-hmm. so right now it the issue i find is Britain, and not just Britain, the West in general, has come to terms with the idea that the, the repercussions of, of globalisation effectively, so go, go in one place, go in one place, and, they, and people from there coming over here. It was okay for them to go other places, but for us to come here, it's a problem. And it's always been that problem, because this place was set up for extraction only. It wasn't meant for you to come back. It was a one-way thing. Mm. Like, we take product from you, but you don't. We don't need to come. You stay there. We can go there. Yeah, it feeds into the the, the notion of the kind of good migrant, right? So you're yeah. supposed to just kind of do what is required of you, and then just go. You know, do it silently. Do what you need to do and go. And I think that's like you know the Windrush scandal, right? You know, hmm. they there's multiple things on multiple levels, obviously, because you know, a Caribbeans were invited, and b they were also. British nationals. So, you know, there's there's that involved, but I suppose it's this idea that you're supposed to come, you're supposed to do all this work, build, rebuild the country, and then just kind of like go. You're not meant to have stayed, you're not meant to have made a family, you're not meant to have like, you know, made roots, you're not meant to have multiplied and had children and kind of used in with the kind of cultural landscape. You're not supposed to have done that. And I think that the same responses with Grimes. So you were talking about Stormzy. I remember he did his Brit Award and he called out Theresa May for the handling of Glenfell. And yeah, and I can't remember the newspaper. It might have been like the Mail, the Daily Mail. Uh, one of the, the journalists wrote something saying that, you know, he should be grateful 
to this country for bringing his mother in, you know. So, you know, it's, it's all of that. I think that, you know, they don't mind listening to and consuming Black music culture, but they don't actually want to hear the voices and the struggles or listen to any of that. So I think, you know, you know, the you know, or many grandmas, they have a platform now through making music and that's fine for, you know, I think a large part of the, the country, as long as you don't speak, right? So it's like, once you speak, there's a problem. So I think that it, you know, it's come, definitely coming out, especially because there are so many artists, I mean, there's so much happening right now, but, you know, so many artists are talking, are not staying silent, you know, they're also, you know, growing for Corbyn and there's been so much politics going on and they've not stayed silent and I think that's caused a lot of contention with White so, kind of touches on what I've kind of been reading the, the last few days. So I've been reading the um, Bell Hooks, Black Looks, and the chapter about the gays, right? She kind of makes a point of saying that, especially Black people in America, and I, I guess to a lesser extent here, to look in the direction of power, look at the direction of your oppressor, was, uh, was a crime. You'd be punished with that. The time that you speak up, no one wants to hear that because you'd be punished, right? So the gays was something that you can't do. So kind of looking at grime or the evil hip hop, it's time... Our gaze, when we look back, this is our private gaze. Time for us to be critical in our own spaces at first, when we first arrived, because we, there was no repercussion. Mm. So the music is our critical engagement with the gaze. So we couldn't look at you directly, but we can speak to you about our struggles for our music. Belkis is not saying that directly, but that's what I've kind of added on. But I'm trying to think that's what it kind of represents. It's our, first of all, it's our own private dialogue about our own pain, our own, have our own living conditions. And it's a critical engagement with lifestyles and cultural production, how we feel in histories. But it's that kind of idea that we can say our thing. And once it gets adopted by the mainstream, that's when it becomes problematic because it's a, it's a criticism about society in general. So I remember when NWA first came out and it got banned. That was banned. So getting, getting like uh, their first album, you're like a G. If I had that, when I got the uh, album, it's all big, boom. Man's a, man was a star, but it's that idea that you're speaking to your people, that dialogue. And it's, I guess for people in power, it's quite a scary thing because it's something that they don't have direct control over. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, you know, when you have like black music and yes, it is, it is coded. It is a space for us to express ourselves. And I think for it to enter a mainstream space, it has to be a surge of that radical potential. It can't have that kind of radical, well, it, well at least it can't be read to, to the white ears, to the white listeners. They cannot be read in that way. Uh, so I think, yeah. One of the things that I was really interested in reading, particularly like how you've come to study this, but also where you've been studying and teaching and writing since 2016. So Brexit happened 26th of June, 2016. So what has it been like thinking about these things away from home? Do you think that's been you the space to really think about grime in general, but also think about the nuances and the particulars about Brexit and what it means sociologically? Yeah, I mean, probably one of the biggest frustrations is that being in the US, Brexit coverage is very limited. So I really have to search for it. I really have to look out for it. I really have to make sure that I'm, you know, really go into British news sources to find out the news because it's not really that big deal in the US. 
um, you'll have some small coverage of oh, what kind of like loosely what's going on. Obviously, it will relate to uh, the economy and obviously kind of global engagements. But there isn't any real conversation that was going on, especially when I was there in like 2016 and 2017. So it was something I really had to search for and find out because it was very, very worrying. Um, you know, when the referendum, the result came out, I was actually out of the country at that time, which was quite, it was quite traumatic because I was actually in China where I couldn't get access to any news. So I couldn't find out the result and I had, uh, I was working, I was still working in fashion and I had to get uh, some, some of the people that I knew in, in, a, in, a, in the factory to try and, you know, go through Chinese firewall and, and help me find out what was going on. But also then, you know, speaking to my friends who literally told me that they had been like racially abused on the street that day. It was really shocking. It was like really was never in some sort of disbelief about Britain and its race relations. But it really was also still very jarring to really be put in that position where you really hear some of the things that, you know, probably I've not had to experience, but like I've heard older generations speaking of that kind of Britain and to think about that kind of return was very, very worrying. So I was very much keen to make sure I was caring about it. And there were so many things that had been happening since 2006 in the news. It was just like, you know, one thing after the other, after the other. And so one of the final things that made me connect the two was for most of my kind of planning for the project, I was actually more focused on the riots. So that was a really pinnacle point for me, thinking about the riots. And I was actually presenting, I was invited into class to do a presentation on Britain and race and, and media as I was doing, talking about riots. And I put on David's Barkley clip. And I think that was probably where I kind of had a realization where I was like, everything that he was saying, about particularly about especially about language and the what was it the the Jamaican pastor that was he said the whites have become, become black. black yeah yeah he also said something like um that this holy force Jamaican pastor had protruded England and standing there maybe in like 2017 maybe by this time I'm standing in the classroom in 2017 hearing that and thinking oh okay well we've just had this campaign about you know, foreignness in Britain and getting rid of all immigrants. And I'm this, this literally sitting here, hearing, you know, Starkey's words emulate. It was 2011. It was 2011. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. 2011. But I mean, I was in 2017. Yeah. Thinking about, thinking about Brexit and then listening to his comments. And I'm like, this is Farage's campaign in a nutshell. And, you know, he wasn't the only one that said there were very, various other journalists in Britain that were talking about invasion of the English language as well, password and this urban speak and all this kind of thing. So, you know, for me, it was like, okay, so how, how can we understand everything that I was just thinking about those things? How can we connect those things together? How can we understand referendum and the desire to leave Europe, to leave, you know, to this kind of xenophobia, anti-blackness? Well, well what upsets me is, I, I guess there's kind of two points. I, I think kind of the first point linking to like someone like Starkey, who's a historian, right? So he's a historian, especially of, of the particular Tudor period. So English, as we speak it now, doesn't start evolving and becoming spoken into that 16th century. But prior to that, English is a, an evolution of different German, Germanic, Gaelic languages all together. So it's a hodgepodge, it's a mixture. Norman, Latin, all these words are derivative of different languages coming together. The Danelaws, it's Vikings. So in its essence, a historian saying that about this patois protruding from their language 
should understand that the very language you're speaking about, your own language is a mixture. But so if he's not alluding to language being a problem, it's the fact that this language is coming from brown and black bodies who he considers an outsider. This, this idea of whiteness is okay, but anything outside this white collective is problematic. But also what kind of kind of links to this idea of like the sound. So one of the things that made me start researching the far right for my kind of research interest was the sound that got me before the referendum was the monkey chant. That sound of them baying from like football stadiums, that monkey noise, I heard that growing up. And that sound to me is oppressive. It's, it makes me, makes me frightened as a child because I used to hear grown men shout it to me when I was like 11 or 12. So, so then again, what was, what was? The sound was like the monkey chant. So they make it sound like a monkey. Like from the football ground, so they make like, like sound like a gorilla. So you're so saying like, you're saying you started hearing that again in 2016, yeah. 2016 and 2015, I'd hear that in, like in football matches. I'd hear that as people walking down the street making gorilla noises, like you're a monkey. And I haven't heard that since I was a kid, since I was a baby. And that sound, that sound, is like using the N word in America. It's it's triggering because it links you to a, a point at a time when that, like I said, the idea that it links you to a point in time in British history, especially when I was growing up, where Things on TV were clearly racist, but, but we never said anything, right? So we had crazy shows like In Sickness and Health, Rising Dam, Ultra Racist, even Only Fools and Horses, which is like a stable of Britishness. If you look at the early episodes, it captures what it was like in the early 80s, super racist. And they would say racist things to you, like in Joe's book, picks up the black guy who worked for the civil service. And he, they used to call him a monkey every morning. And for two minutes, this guy just laughed and joked along. And he said, then Joe said to him, why don't you get upset? And he goes, you have to remember, we're guests here. So that's an old colonial attitude that we just put up with the stuff. And for a long time, like, I, I, even I remember now, looking back, I think to myself, why didn't my mum ever tell me? Or why didn't my nan tell me, like, what the fuck's going on? Like, why, did, why are they doing that? But no one said anything. It wasn't until I started becoming radicalised, like, by the time I got to secondary school, I'm thinking, right. Your, your man taking the piss out of me on TV and it was normal. It's that that idea of that that sonic sound attached to a time in Britain when they, they, they could do that and no one said a thing. They could be racist and it was unchallenged. So what I think is really powerful about what you said, Shireen, we had to sort of deal with the emotion that was attached to Brexit because if you were a person of colour and if you were black, many of us, although not all of us, as we know, you always need collaborators for a white supremacist society, but there were many of us that were scared about it, not because we love the EU, but because we saw the nationalism and the racism that was coming through. There were many of us that saw that. So there was that emotional reaction to seeing the fact that those people had won. But then over the past few years, what we've had to do, Shireen, and I think you speak to this really well, is we've had to come to terms with the fact that this has been a very long time coming and it's been a long project and there were lots of flashpoints. And you mentioned the London riots and David Starkey. Like, I remember that David Starkey interview so well in 2011. It was just before I started my undergraduate degree. And I remember thinking, this is a bit scary, but I'm not going to think about it for now because I feel I feel relatively safe. But it's like there were obviously people at the time, there were scholars at the time, there were activists at the time that were thinking and writing about how pernicious this kind of language is and how we should be keeping an eye on UKIP, all those different things. But it kind of Brexit kind of had to happen in order for us to really recalibrate. Maybe that's kind of that's a bit deterministic, I guess. But it, what I'm sort of drawing on is the fact what you say is that 
taking stock has meant realising that this has been going on for a long time? You know what I'm mad I've been really thinking about that. And in 1978, right, there was a concept called Rock Against Racism, right? So it was in East London. It was a massive movement because the NF were 20% in my area, in Tower Hamlets, right? So it was a national front, right? So there was a big racist movement. So this has always been under the surface and it, it bubbles at the top. And some reason why... There's, well, there's many reasons why, but one of the reasons why was that they were just unelectable, so they needed time to sort themselves out. But the tones and the stuff they talk about, you can see it's a very consistent thing. So all my life, up until up until like it becomes unfashionable to be race openly racist, right? So in my early formative years, being openly racist was a thing. It was a thing. It's not. It wasn't. It wasn't thought as being particularly horrible it only became horrible when someone was violent with it right when it followed with violence but people i would consider my friends would be openly racist to me but obviously because i occupy that contingent inside us what they say rt not you just them right so it's that thing it's always been there and at certain times we've had to unite so like i said rock against racism is an example of us of that resistance through music through sound to critically engage with that with the politics that's going on Right. So you had lots of alternative acts like Sex Pistols and people who are anti-establishment. Again, it still doesn't take away that narrative because people always see racism, especially in that context, as something that it's uneducated working class people do. And that's not the issue. It's the systemic thing. And that's what always gets missed when we're kind of challenging. It, I think. And, and I think Brexit, how it's been positioned, it's been positioned as in that uneducated bit of the country speaking again. But no, it's not that. It's the system speaking, saying, listen, we don't want you. But they're positioned mm-hmm. it as it's white working classes that are doing it all. No, it's not them that are doing it all. It's the system, right? Really pleased that you brought up the 1970s. There are parallels, I think, that you can make with understanding the present in relation to like, the 1970s. So there's many things that happened in the 70s that also kind of we can see have occurred in the last 20 years. So riots is one of them obviously the research of the far right we also can see a financial crash yes right? so there was a in both these decades right so we can see the way certain things create also like this research of the far right with you know deprivation economical deprivation of obviously black and white working class people so we can see the way those things can also shape the development of our landscapes so i think that's really good and i really appreciate the Bring up 2000. Um, I, I really appreciate you mentioning uh, the 70s because, yeah, that's absolutely um, spot on. And also, the, like you said about Rocker Apes Gates racism, there's also use of music to kind of really create a political consciousness. So, mm. reggae is really, really strong in the UK. Also, punk is taken off within the white working class, which obviously, as we know, has a real connection to and is a reaction to black reggae music, right? So, they also try to articulate their struggle through black music. And so, yeah, you absolutely have this way in which music is doing something on a political front, as well as just trying to help people to negotiate and deal with their lives, you know, in, in relation to a landscape that they've been economically deprived. Absolutely there. And I think what you point, another point that you made was obviously this constant belief that this uneducated white working class are always the ones that are spewing racism, right? And not thinking about the fact that, yes, okay, they may hold these racist views, but there's also this systemic issue of the ways in which um, racism is being instituted. So, you know, for us right now, you know, austerity, 
right? And thinking about the way in which, and I think this has affected a lot of the grind generation, you know, the fact that, you know, since 2010, youth clubs have closed down, right? And that was kind of a hub for grind, for grind masters at the very beginning. So to have them taken away, uh, provisions to support higher education, all of these things are impacting a generation. And I think that, you know, finding solace in music, articulating one's experiences in music, is something and I think it's part of what has made grime being able to extend past London because it is something that a lot of other country are feeling. Me and my one of my mates Yusuf, we're doing some research around grime, drill and UK rap. Basically looking at the concept as music as a way out for young black youths, right? As it as an alternative to kind of paid formal employment as what we understand is like a nine to five. We're interviewing producers, rappers, artists. Anyone from the kind of music music industry, right? So we asked them, do you think your music's political? Are you political? Now, the majority of them say no. They don't perceive it that way. And it's quite interesting because when you're carrying out an interview, you realise they're always acting in a political way. So their show's being closed down because they feel like the music's going to be incited to violence. So they can't earn a living. So how do you, if you're stopping these guys earning a living, what do you expect? Them to do this whole idea but they don't even though they're caught in a political maelstrom they initially don't think of their music as being political until interrogated about it until kind of put on the spot and kind of asked to think about it in a different way and it's quite interesting that, and when he kind of thought bro oh, i didn't even realize that that was when i responded to he was like bro i didn't even know man was being like political when i'm rapping in it and i'm like <laughs> kind of it's, it's mad I guess for us, and kind of taking it back to bell hooks, we get enjoyment out of being critical. Our enjoyment for music is a criticism of whatever we're listening to. It might be a critique of the music, but we're looking in that way. But these people are, first and foremost, artists, right? So they're looking to make how people have fun, how people are responding. And it's that thing that they get upset with, that they, that they lose, that passion, when it becomes formalised and it comes to job. For us, well, our audience, like I said, we engage critically but they're engaging on a different level. And again, I didn't really appreciate that. I'm thinking, well, how can you not see it? But he's an artist, man. He, he sees things and hears things differently than what I do. He's got a different agenda and he's not looking to make a statement about politics unless explicitly so. He's looking to make people dance and buy my record. I mean, I think, I mean, what I probably would just say is that the personal is political, kind of, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's in yeah. that sense, right? So it's like, <laughs> you don't actually have to, they don't actually have to want to engage in mainstream politics them being black bodies from where they're, where they're from is already inherently political. Their ability to get a platform to disseminate their music to a wider audience is already political. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't think they have to outrightly have an agenda. Mm. And to be honest, they don't have to. It will, when it enters the mainstream, it will be politicised. It will already be read yeah. in that way, yeah. right? Uh-huh. When you're talking about with Bell Hooks and the Gays, right? It will always be read in that context. And I agree that they should be allowed to, because I've had, you know, so, so many people have asked me about, um, don't you think that grandma is, I mean, maybe a little bit less right now, but have asked me like, don't you think that they should have more of a, a stance about things? Um, don't you think they should be political? I remember there was a Skepta interview, I think it was with Naomi Campbell, and everyone were really outraged that he wasn't really engaging about politics. And so, yeah, I, I don't think they sh- I don't think they need to. I think that you know they should be able to create art, and I think they should be able to, you know, do that and do whatever they want to do in, in that, and not have to be worried about being 
uh, role models or being political correspondents. And I also think that it's unfair for a lot of grime artists to be pushed in a position where they become like the black spokesperson for the country. Yes. Yeah. Right? So it's like, oh, something's happened in Black Britain or something to do with race relations. Let's talk to a, a, a grime artist or a rapper or someone in music. Like, no, that's not what you know. That's not their responsibility. They don't have to. And I don't think they have to be burdened with that. And so, yeah. yeah, without a doubt, I don't think they should be burdened with that. I mean, they want to. And I absolutely love and respect that a lot of them have decided to speak up. And, you know, I, I very much think I identify with many of them more than I think, you know. So I, I you know, I'm really passionate about them when they do speak up because I think, yes, much of the time I think they do represent, you know, some of the, the anguish that I feel. So I'm really, you know, that's what they want to do. But I don't think that's what they have to do kind of linking back to your kind of interest in the fashion industry as well, that these people, unfortunately, because they're talking in a way that it's, it's the realness and authenticity, white, the white population will, will refer to them as, uh, that's a mirror onto the streets. And I was kind of linking to like no logo when Naomi Klein speaking about, I think Adidas and like going into the urban areas and doing growing. So looking at a black person, they're thinking, right, so what he's wearing is what the street's wearing. So this person... I it's still can't bullet. believe that happens. Like when you, I, think, yeah, I think it was you told me about that. Like yeah. the Nike or, reps coming onto yeah. your estate or, to see or, what yeah. everyone was wearing. Yeah, or like boom, like I you got a few, a few pair of trainers, and like man's like the calling up man's and saying like what what you what you got or Adidas, Adidas going to Run DMC's concert, right? So Run DMC got a track called My Adidas, and then everyone holds up their trainers, and Adidas are like ka-ching, well, everyone wears your trainers. They understand that, so it's, they look at as, the mainstream site is looking at us at certain individuals because they homogenize the black experience that these people are, have an authenticity about them. And this is representing what the masses are, are feeling. So not understanding that there's a, a heterogeneous, like there's a mix of black people, a, a diversity in us, but it's the interest in that, this is what happens. Even though they don't want to be spokespeople, by definition, you become that. And it happens in the fashion industry. So the Nike have kind of jumped on it. And so Louis Vuitton, which is high fashion, has become street. Kenya West, Yeezys, like, when they came out, I, I listen, I was laughing at him. And now it's high fashion. You've got him on a trainer rant now. Like, this, tell, tell, the, tell the listeners how many trainers yeah. you've got, too. I've got a pair of trainers today. Sick, sick, sick. I don't know. Honestly, honestly, I've got, I've, in the last three weeks, six. four weeks, Six Don't weeks. tell people how many trainers you've bought <laughs> since lockdown. Five. <laughs> and I've got a pair of Yeezys. Now, because you're stuck at home, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've worked for a sports brand. I, you know, I know the appeal. I haven't said that, actually. It's just funny enough. I just thought to myself that when I, when I worked for Puma, I actually was part of the product development team that worked on the Professor Green X Puma collection. Oh. Wow. So, yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, we had very many meetings with him and like my, my design team and so on. We all worked on that collection. So yeah, I absolutely know the significance of, you know, music and sportswear and sports lifestyle. Absolutely, uh, you know. But I mean, I think a point that you did make about obviously keeping uh, like being current and, and finding out what's the trend I think that's something that you know is I mean I probably would say it's probably dicey but yeah with fashion is you know the street culture and you know part of 
design development is to go out on the streets and see what people are wearing, to take pictures of people wearing clothes. And, you know, and so these are spaces that, you know, would definitely, you know, draw, draw attention. They want to know what, you know, grandparents are wearing, what artists are wearing. But having said that, I mean, in relation to grime, there are so many grime artists that have had collections with sportswear, mm-hmm. you know, release something. I mean, or, or just fashion in general, that Skepta has a brand. So that's, that's the one that Naomi Campbell was mm-hmm. promoting as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, has had trainers. Well, I was going to say, what's interesting though, how the drill scenes developed. So like you said, when you said people taking pictures of, of people and we, black people understand how our bodies yes, are. That's, that's a legitimate method in fashion. Yeah, but it's been appropriate. So yeah. in, in drill though, people yeah. cover, up their, they cover up their faces. So they are aware that their image is appropriate. So now... Everyone looks nondescript. You can't really tell what the fashion is. So they all look the same, but their faces are covered, their hands are covered. The only thing, the only distinct feature is their trainers that kind of mark them out. Uh-huh. So they're, they're quite aware that their images are being appropriated at, on some level because normally they cover their face for crime. But this, the idea is that my image can be taken away from me. And in my image, there's power. It's, yeah. But I mean, I think that, I mean, even then, you know, I think sports where is very popular even when i've been to like events i think obviously because i i know fashion and i know a lot of sports lifestyle brands to go to a concert and see an artist wearing just a black tracksuit that doesn't look particularly you know mm. out there and then for me to be like oh i know that brand i know that tracksuit because i'm like yeah. for 500 pounds yeah so has taught me over the years about that connection because Honestly, I don't think people necessarily realise how interconnected the actual commercial and cultural production is. To keep sportswear, to keep trainers, you know, the thing to be buying, you need to continue to engage with that culture and you need to continue to, you know, collaborate. And if it's, you know, getting them to wear things, I think I think at the moment, because within fashion, um, collaborations have become such a successful part of uh, business that that is now the way to go so obviously like you were saying with easy um and so yeah and so you've seen that but actually what i was going to say was um Hello. one of my uh favorite kind of music, uh, music fashion thing particularly with brian was the nike ad i think that was actually 2016 
So they'll come into the training shop. They'll come in and you see them. And I think that has a, a powerful effect on the, on, the, on the youth aspiration and expectations. So yeah. kids see it and say, oh, if my man can do it, and I know my man's brother, and he lives next door, and you know someone. So that, there's that connection thinking, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And this kind of sentiment is echoed around, I, I, suppose, I suppose it's been a kind of a, a mainstay of, hip, of the hip-hop genre in general. Someone from the ends makes it, so I can make it. And it's an alternative lifestyle that is attainable for me. And it's something I can do. And my other cousin, he, he maniac. So he made his career from not leaving his bedroom. He done what he did and made tracks for people. And I didn't even know he was that good until someone said, your cousin makes beats. I'm like, bro, I didn't even know that. I just thought he didn't talk to me. You get me? So <laughs> it's that understanding of like, it, it, gives, it gives, especially young black kids are like, who, who may not be, who may not feel academia is something that speaks to them, a way of being creative in ways that you never thought you could be creative. And the fact that you can make money from it, you can have a career from it. Because within that genre, we don't, they're not just looking for artists or DJs, but there's hype men or there's businessmen, there's accountants that they're doing, not in a formalistic way, but in an in a informal way, but doing it the same job, promoting the business without having that business structure. Just thinking about one of the, one of the key things right now I'm really um, kind of mulling over right now is uh, Stuart Hall's Police in the Crisis. Okay. Um, I'm like, I, I, I mean, I've read it several times, but I think my reading of it last summer, I've, I've absolutely fallen in love with it. And it was just when you were just talking about the ability to find new kind of career aspirations, really spoke to me about... Um, what Paul discusses in there about um, wagelessness um, as an act of rebellion. So the desire to not engage in um, the kind of work and work economy because the work that you're on offer is, is one that is um, not acceptable, one that will be uh, where someone will not have a good quality of life. And so to kind of, as an act of rebellion is to, to reject it, right, and to just not enter into the work workplace and I think that that is a really interesting point in the sense that you know this is something that they can do want to do and you know and can do it on their own kind of you know do it with a sense of self and sense of pride yeah. and and, I, and I, I really think that's really interesting and you know they are creating um industries from it you know there's been uh, magazines there's been you know uh, music channels you know, record yeah. labels. And so it is really good to see that there is a way in which, um, you know, a generation can enter, or at least feel that they can enter into the economy uh, on their own footing. Police in the crisis, like, I feel like that's one of our top, I yeah. one of our top tests. I've read it about four uh, times really, already. It really is. We love it, love it, love it. And Shrein, we love you as well. That was absolutely brilliant. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Before, before you go, um, Shrein, can you give us, what are you reading and what are you listening to? Uh, what am I reading? Beyond everything, like, well, like academically or just like? You could give us a bit of both or you could give us one, whatever you want, whatever you want. Okay, well, I mean... At the moment, I'm trying to get through, I'm um, reading little bits at the time of um, Hazel Carby's uh, Intimacy, Intimate... Imperial Intimacies, yeah. So I'm reading that, but in between that, I'm also reading 
the um, Rich 3-2's book, Repology, um, that I'm also reading at the moment, and Stormzy's book, Rise Up. And what are you listening to? Them. Uh, when I'm not, I mean, I'm trying to listen to some of the early grime, I'm re-listening to some grime um, albums, um, Dizzy Rascal's Boy in the Corner, re-listening to that. I'm also listening to Skepta's Kanichiwa album. That's the Mercury Award one, isn't it? Yes, that is, that is. So kind of re-listening to some of those. But then at the same time, because we're in quarantine, um, I've just also found solace in some really old, uh, well, not old, but in like 2000s music, a lot of like English 2000 music, you know. So, um, you know, go back to, you know, my teens and, listening to Craig David. You know, I actually listened to Jamelia the other day. And we love Jamelia. Yeah, and I was, uh, <laughs> I revisited the the first um, Sugar Babes album, the only one I actually really liked, <laughs> with the original lineup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and some of that. And also, obviously, um, I've been listening to So Solid and Oxide um, Neutrino as well. Yeah. I actually used Oxide Neutrino for, I did a, an event at uh, Stuart Hall Library and I played that song and then that made me want to listen to the album again so then I've been listening to amazing to to just kind of trying to remember fun simpler times <laughs> T what about you reading and listening right I, it's a geeky section today so I'm actually reading it's not even a book it's a comic right so it's a classic it's called Crisis and Infinite Earths from 1986 amazing so I rebought that and I'm listening to, obviously, it's usually old stuff, but this is Original House, Frankie Knuckles, Tears, my all-time favourite, bar none, track ever. You First love that song. <laughs> listen, listen, you have to imagine, man, it's 1994, man's out, boom, 16, I'm thinking, yes, I've got Ralph Lauren, Ralph Lauren shirt on, Ralph Lauren jeans, a little jacket, man thinks he's out there, boom, <laughs> wicked, love that song. I am reading at the moment um, Imogen Tyler's Stigma, um, The Machinery of Inequality. Absolutely amazing book. Like, oh, shit. absolutely. It's good, Imogen, it? it's good. It's good. Imogen Tyler, an incredible scholar. And I'm listening to now, usually I bring a podcast, my part in this section, but it's been quite an up and down period for me right now during um, lockdown. I have needed some music and. As you were just saying, Shireen, going back to sort of old music, I've been listening to 1995 album from the Lighthouse family, Ocean Drive. (laughs) Pure happiness album, literally. (laughs) Right, I'm going to stop speaking to you, but you are making me feel old, man. You're saying 2000, man. You know, I do that all the time when I'm like, in a class and I always try to encourage the students to like recognize the dates of like texts yeah, yeah. about the context and then I'll be like you know this text was like you know written 20 years ago or you know like in yeah, and then yeah, I'm yeah. like well you know is this is an old text and I'm like Donnelly no stop saying that and <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us Shireen that was such a brilliant conversation I feel buzzing and motivated brilliant Shireen thank you thank you thank you thank you and oh, listeners thanks. thank you for joining us listeners and we'll see you next week you have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso if you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast 
if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.